Hello, I'm Arnold Hamilton, editor of the Oklahoma Observer. And I'm Marianne Martin. And this is Observer Cast, your weekly deep dive into Oklahoma politics and policy. Presented by the Mary Lou Lemon Foundation. Michelin's recent announcement that it is closing its manufacturing plant in Ardmore after 53 years is a deja vu moment for Oklahoma policymakers. 18 years earlier, General Motors similarly rocked Oklahoma City when it abruptly closed its assembly plant after 27 years. Both decisions sent shockwaves through the state's economy. 2,400 high-paying union jobs were lost when GM bid adieu. 1,400 more will disappear uh, when Michelin closes shop and padlocks the plant in 2025, if not sooner. In both cases, Oklahoma taxpayers helped get the plants up and running and or provided ongoing financial incentives to secure the high-paying jobs in Oklahoma. In the end, none were enough to keep the plants going. A Senate Select Committee on Business Retention and Economic Development met last week at the state capitol to consider where Oklahoma's gone wrong in its efforts to lure major economic expansions and investments and to keep major employers from skedaddling and leaving towns high and dry after cashing in on taxpayer generosity. Opinions are varied, but there seems a growing recognition that Oklahoma State House leaders are putting the state behind the proverbial eight ball by failing to invest in vital services that help build a healthy, well-educated workforce. Instead, all too often, they are preoccupied with nasty, divisive social issues with punitive legislation that demonizes others and restricts freedom of choice, making it easier for companies to expand or consolidate operations elsewhere. For this week's Observer Cast, we invited Oklahoma City Senator Julia Kurt to help unpack what's happening here, where Oklahoma is fumbling, bumbling, stumbling, and what we can do to ensure a brighter, more sustainable economic future for our children and grandchildren. So, Senator, great to have you back. You're 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 kind of a regular with us, right? I mean, that's great. I hope I mean, so. Normally, Glad we to normally be. have folks say, "Well, you know, tell us who you are and where you know where you where, what you represent and everything." But maybe you can tell people again if they've slept since then. And yeah, I'll do it briefly. You know, I'm in the state senate. Is, you know, yeah, I got elected in 2018. I represent a northwest part of Oklahoma City that includes Bethany and Ware Acres, so very near northwest. Um, really the historic neighborhoods uh, in the near Northwest got elected in 2018. Glad to be here. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the latest economic development setback in the big picture here. Michelin announcing that uh, it's going to pull out of Oklahoma after, well, that plant's been there for over a half a century. Michelin hadn't had it. I know that long, but been here a long time. And this is another one of those things. It's, it's deja vu all over again for Oklahoma because, you know, we went through that with General Motors after the taxpayers put a lot of treasure into that operation. And and uh, and now the taxpayers have, you know, have done a fair amount on Michelin over the years, too. And we don't seem to be able to hold on to it. So what's wrong with this picture? What are we what are we doing wrong in economic development in Oklahoma that just merely throwing money at them and getting them to come here doesn't mean that they're going to necessarily stay very long. Yeah. I just think we have to remember that, you know, publicly traded or international 
entities, companies, their priority is not the people of Oklahoma. Their priority is profit and their priority is their shareholders. And we just, I think sometimes we like to forget that because we get enticed by the short-term wins by bringing outside money in. Um, but unfortunately, that loss of those jobs will not be gained by other wins this year. Um, I can't imagine, um, although we have attracted some outside investment. But I think we always get tantalized by that outside money. But the problem is that money also leaves the state. Um, certainly any um, locally owned businesses, that money stays in our economy and re re it stays within our communities, um, whereas that publicly traded money and money for international organizations, of course, is leaving. And I just think the short term wins are too enticing to us. Well, but we also have a situation here in Oklahoma where it, it seems to me that it, and you're beginning to see some recognition, I think, on part of some of your colleagues uh, that maybe we aren't doing all we can do or should be doing to develop the kind of workforce that is going to really be enticing for people to move here without having to just back the Brinks truck up and and hope we can buy their allegiance for a decade or two or three. Um, and and it, I also can't help but think that um, there is nobody, very few are going to admit to this publicly at the state capitol or those in the majority, super majority party, but uh, we haven't exactly created the most envir uh, inviting environment here. And that seems to me that it makes it a little easier if a company decides, you know, our operations might be better suited elsewhere uh, in an area where it's easier to attract people to come because they will feel welcome as opposed to being ostracized as others, um, as legislation so often does here in Oklahoma. Thoughts? Yeah, you know, we have a hard time getting anyone to say that publicly um, from these companies. Uh, we did have, we had a session with site selectors who are those, you know, consultants hired by uh, economic development firms and by companies to look at sites. They tend to be the gatekeepers around locations um, and potential investment, especially foreign direct investment and other companies deciding where to locate. Um, they we had a session where they were supposed to be frank with us. And I don't know if they were very frank, but they did talk about it as a risk. Um, they didn't say it's a complete barrier or hindrance, but they talked about um, exclusionary policies as a risk that some companies aren't willing to take. Um, I would say the big question is who we're competing against. And so usually we're competing against other communities that are more in line with us um, in terms of our educational attainment and our status. So we're not always competing with places that might have those more inclusive policies. Um, so I don't know that we can't tie it directly to that. I think we know it comes along with um, some of those other barriers, barrier, our barriers to health, our barriers to um, quality education. And, and they continue to want short-term fixes for education, um, wanting to bypass the hard work it takes to really help families and help, help students long-term. I just thought it was interesting that even, you know, that, that Senator Pugh even, you know, acknowledged that, and, and Roger Thompson as well has sort of indicated this, that you, you sort of get this sense that they understand that maybe we have not invested in ways necessary that create the kind of workforce that would, you know, would be attractive to people. 
uh, with outside investment. And you you hit on two of the things that I was thinking about. And, you know, a, a healthy Oklahoma, we, we certainly don't have near the mental health care that we need in this state. And academically, we're not where even close to where we need to be. We're scraping the bottom of the barrel in way too many of these, you know, categories. So, you know, how do you, do you get a sense that beyond just sort of paying lip service to it, that there is some recognition that um, maybe this, the way we have been doing things, you know, is, is, uh, is not a way that's going to be successful for Oklahoma long-term. Well, you know, I'd like to be hopeful about that, but then I, there's a lot of hypocrisy that happens um, somewhere between those values and what's being said. And um, we, for instance, the pro tem treat set up this uh, select committee on business retention and economic development, which I'm sitting on. And at the beginning, he asked us all to talk about hopes and dreams and to a fault, everyone in that room talked about how we need to focus on local businesses. We need to focus on the growth of businesses already here. We need to stop trying to chase the, you know, the home run. We need to focus on the, the, you know, taking those steps with growth for the companies we already have. And then we turn around and pass another huge uh, incentive package for a big multinational company. So I don't, I don't see that what we're saying is necessarily lining up with what we're doing. Um, in terms of commitment to education, I mean, I think there's a challenge that we have a lot of people who want us to improve career-oriented technical skills types of education. So um, developing aerospace mechanics or things like that. But that idea of just knowing that more people need to go to college or knowing that more people need better access to college is not what I hear. So I hear a lot of that language about, well, college isn't for everyone. Well, of course not. But what we do is we tend to typecast who can and can't go to college. And I know that I've seen the figures just this week that, you know, higher income folks, still 80 plus percent of their kids go to college. Meanwhile, lower income folks, it's 60 percent or lower. And I bet it's a lot lower in Oklahoma. So when we say not everyone needs to go to college, what we mean is people without means don't need to go to college. And I think I want to call that out more because I think what we can help more people go to college. We can help our students be better prepared. I just read about a great program at Cricket Oak that in just a couple of years, they got, you know, 50% more kids going to OU and going to four-year universities than they'd ever had. Um, we just have to make that effort. And so when we do this whole, oh, it's fine if you go to career tech. Okay. Yeah. I'm not saying that I think career tech is a good option, but if we're not even pushing and encouraging and preparing people and preparing them financially with a program that's affordable, then of course people aren't going to go. We're setting up too many barriers ahead of time. And we know that the economy of the future needs more bachelor's degrees. We've been told repeatedly that we don't have enough bachelor degrees for the economy of the future. So why are we selling ourselves short on that? So about that, um, it, it's, it's, that's a really fascinating point at all of this, because it's like, a, uh, it becomes kind of, the, the scapegoat for not investing in any of it, you know, so um, we're making sure college is unaffordable um, to only those who can pay completely out of pocket, you know, underfunding it, raising tuition prices, largely getting subsidized by North Dallas, who's sending their kids, you know, to the University of Oklahoma and things like this, rather than actually using state dollars to to fund state schools. Um, and so maintaining that you know, level of unapproachability, which then kind of duplicates like this um, elitist idea of what college is, 
mm-hmm. right? Like, um, but but then at the same time, okay, career tech, yeah. But what are we doing to support those programs as well? And then the 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 whole like you know K twelve common ed like program, no support there either. In fact, like kind of vilifying it and double doubling mm-hmm. down on you know this woke indoctrination that's allegedly taking place between you know for kindergartners to, to high school seniors. So it's just like this perpetuating loop of mm-hmm. <laughs> educational doom almost um, without actually answering any of those questions um, and setting our kids up for success mm-hmm. by actually investing in the tools to help them be successful with whatever that success looks like. Yeah, um, I mean, the heartbreaking thing was that this year, I mean, we could have celebrated some successes for public ed this year. I mean, we finally bumped up the... Um, raises given to educators actually finally caught up with inflation over the last uh, 30 years by my calculations. We finally made a meaningful investment in per pupil spending that would bring us into regional averages. But simultaneously, we passed private school vouchers. So we're, we're, we're making improvements, but we're also undermining and undercutting at the same time. So I agree. I think we don't, it's not the kind of consistency we need, um, for kids and for educators to feel well supported. Well, I mean, it's also, it's like, rather than just kind of setting a menu in front of all kids, you know, and letting them kind of self-select, it's predetermining who gets the prefixed, you know, fancy $70 meal to go to college and who gets, you know, the McDonald's value meal um, rather than just writing like equally across the board, helping these kids achieve these things, because I'm also thinking too, like, okay, yes, we need kind of our own, you know, like uh, we, we, we need to be able to create Oklahomans, you know, that can do these jobs, these technical jobs, these highly skilled jobs. But then if I'm an engineer coming from another part of the country or the world, and I'm thinking about, do I want to relocate to Southern central Oklahoma? you know, to work at, you know, the Michelin plant, I'm probably like, no, I'll I'll take that buyout package. Right. Yeah. I mean, the relocation numbers are so tiny. Um, I can't remember what the site selectors told us. They told us what percentage of people relocate. I feel like it's one or 2%. Like you cannot count on big numbers of relocation. So we really do have to be able to develop the workforce we need. Um, One positive. So I just did an interim study specifically about the quality jobs program, which is an incentive program that the state has run for 30 years. And, you know, when I arrived in office, I was ready to blow everything up and, you know, revisit everything. And I realized very quickly how established these programs are and what they're based on. And some, you know, I don't know that they have great data backing them up, but I have spent a lot of time looking at the evaluation um, by our national consultants through the evaluation incentive evaluation commission. And those reports are very helpful for looking at data and outcome because, you know, I know we're not going to zero those things out and it probably would be catastrophic, frankly, because it's really helped um, a lot of the businesses that we expect to to continue to grow. But looking at what are the reasonable changes we could make to make those programs significantly better. And to me, a lot of it's around expectations and standards. And that program offers companies a 5% cash back for 10 years on their payroll for new jobs. And it's come into light lately because the Thunder has been one of the biggest users of this. But but basically, we have some base level requirements to, to enter the quality jobs program, and they have to be making a pretty good chunk of, of new jobs. 
and then they get this cash guarantee for 10 years, which I think is just outrageous. Um, that's one thing that consultants have pointed out that 10 years is too long. But anyway, that's that's apparently the third rail. So we're not I'm not suggesting we change that. But I do think we need higher wage standards. And the other thing is when this program was established, um, it, it's, it required health insurance paid by the employer. Well, now that's federally mandated. So that's not that's no longer a high quality job. That's a bare minimum. Um, so I think we need to add things like paid leave. I think we need to increase those wages significantly more right now. It's based on, I think it's 110% of county average wage or the statewide average wage, or they can pay the lower of the two. So for whatever community, it might actually be lower than their local wages. And that concerns me because I feel like we're giving these very generous promises to these companies we need to make sure it's actually increasing lifting talk about rising tides lifting all boats it needs to be lifting the average wages what are the average wages uh it depends on the part of the state um but i think the i think the oklahoma county average wage is like sixty-five thousand ish statewide is lower and i i don't i can't remember that number right now I'm just thinking like atoka county's uh it's not a living wage we looked at it for osage county and it was not a living wage, but I I feel like living, being able to afford an apartment, some it's like seventeen dollars an hour plus, and it wasn't there for some counties. I, and that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, there's no way, you know. I mean, because we all because I mean, you pair that with other out indicators that we know. We know what food and food insecurity rates are. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just there's just no way that the people of Oklahoma. Well, and the average includes those really high wages too. You know, I asked them if it would be better to do median and, you know, the st statisticians kind of geek out about that stuff. But I, I mean, I want to make sure it's really right. I mean, I actually think we should disaggregate it, take that data and look at it based on degrees, because we know that people without a high school degree, it's much harder for them to get quality jobs. And so we need some of those jobs. That was actually an enticement to me when they brought that lead project forward, which would have been a Panasonic project, because it was very high quality jobs for people who may have only a high school degree or not even a high school degree. And that, that opportunity for them to get a, a not dangerous job with good benefits and good wages was was enough to motivate me um, to support that project. Whereas, you know, average wages for people who are well educated, we don't need to attract that. We need to, to fill in some of those quality jobs for people who don't have the educational attainment. So that, that makes me wonder then, like, you know, if, if these, um, you know, quality jobs types programs from the state, uh, the Panasonic package, you know, these, these things that we like create to try and incentivize uh, business coming here. I'm like, who, who are those really created with? Who, who's in mind when these packages are created? Because what I'm hearing you say is like, if, if it's not demanding a living wage, if it's not demanding a salary for people, you know, you're then what, you know, is, is this for business or is this for Oklahoma? Right. Well, and, and I think we're, you know, giving up our state benefit essentially because a new job, I mean, the best thing we can count on is an income tax. And now our income taxes. 4.75%, I think. So if we're giving away 5% of those new wages, then Oklahoma doesn't get a direct benefit, God, yeah. except for whatever sales tax, um, whatever they're purchasing, um, we might get a benefit. So it's actually a 25, like a 0.25% net loss, right? Like Yeah, yeah, right. We haven't updated the amount since, um, since 
income tax got cut. But Marianne was kind of getting at what I was sitting, what I was thinking while you were talking is that part of this is we've come at this strictly from what our policymakers over the years have thought businesses wanted, as opposed to a, a bigger picture of what can we do to be, you know, to help rise all the boats and get the rising tide going and educate these kids, uh, younger people who are coming up in ways that they may be the creators who do things far beyond what the Panasonics and the Michelins and the, you know, the multinationals who come in would ever think about doing, right? Yeah. And, but we're missing, we're missing out on that because we're creating, we're just sort of saying, well, we need, we need to educate them in a certain way for these particular jobs, which may or may not stay here as we've discovered. Um, but you don't create necessarily educated people if you understand what I'm saying, who uh, who might think bigger than just simply, you know, understanding how that one particular task. And I'm not to minimize. Look, I, you know, I, I have trouble screwing in a light bulb. I'm not. I'm not. I'm you know, I looked um, for a while. At, you know, we get additional gifted uh, and talented kids who are identified as gifted and talented get additional revenue for school districts and schools, and we don't adequately identify kids who don't fit certain molds. So we automatically identify kids who have high test scores. Um, but like, for instance, I was looking at Oklahoma city public schools because Putnam city, tell me if I'm going too far afield here, but Putnam city did a whole thing where they started identifying more kids for gifted um, who were multi-talented. So like you can identify kids for art skills, for other types of skills, they can do non-verbal um, IQ and gifted testing. They identified a ton more kids, so they got a lot more money, and they used that money to pay for a STEM educator and for arts educators for all kids. So it didn't just benefit the gifted kids. So I was looking at this for OKCPS. At one point, I looked at uh, MLK Elementary, and they only had two children identified as gifted. That is wrong. I mean, that's the kind of um, uh, just I, it makes me so irate because we know there are gifted children in every population of kids and we are just not giving them the opportunities they need to shine in whatever way that they can. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that makes me crazy, because when you think about like, oh, we're shooting kids over into technical training. What if that kid is a brilliant entrepreneur? What if that kid has the option? I agreed. They could be great inventors. We, If we're not maximizing their skills and giving them those opportunities, no, of course they're not going to go. We, uh, I saw the numbers this week for OU and it's like an OSU and they're huge numbers of first gen students, which is awesome. But like OU, I think has, you know, 25% first generation kids. Whereas like Langston, it's like 80% first gen. I mean, huge opportunity. I feel like those first gen are the kids that we absolutely have to be supporting and putting them in those positions. Um, I met so many constituents on the door who understood that education was how their kids were going to gain improved economic stability. Um, but if we're not creating those opportunities for kids and we're making it financially unfeasible, and if we're encouraging them at an early age to bypass and go, why don't you just go do this certification? And I'm not dissing on certifications. I'm just saying, why are we shutting down options for kids? Right, right, right. Like full menu, mm -hmm. you know, prefix white white tablecloth in mm -hmm. addition to, I mean, all of it. Um, because 
I, I just know at our elementary school here in Norman, there was a year where they tested all the kids who were gifted and talented. And I was right. like, oh, I know what you're doing, you know? <laughs> and it was like in, in my, my school, my elementary school tends to skew um, higher income. And, you know, and I, the year that I found out that like a third of our students were gifted and talented, I was like, what? Yeah. Right. And so, uh, but I, it's like the worst kind of social engineering you can imagine. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I've talked about this on this this podcast a lot. You know, I grew up with Scott Edmund in Middell schools at a time when they had the most amazing, gifted, and talented program. I was a first. I'm a first generation college yeah. student. You know, my parents and you were, have a PhD. That's I know, awesome. I know exactly. <laughs> and I, but I'm like a freak success story, you know. And well, I'm not. I'm not because Middell, like I, I my 20th um, high school reunion, I was like, shit. How many of us are doctors, PhDs, lawyers, uh-huh. doctors? You know, I mean, we did really well because it was a district that just like, God, they just did some shit right in the late 80s and yeah. early 90s, and so. Ah, so mm, it's just like when you think of why are we throwing billions of dollars at these corporations on yeah. the crash shoot and then acknowledging that we have that money to set aside. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I got to say, I don't yet. It's a, it's a hamster wheel that's hard to get off is what I will say, because I... <laughs> I, I truly, when I came in, just assumed it was all a mess. But I think it's it's propping up jobs that we might not get. True. And it's unfortunately the way that states compete with each other and cities compete with each other. So it's kind of how things are done. So I was surprised to find out that the quality jobs program, 80% of the revenues of the program over the last five years, I think, was to local, to Oklahoma-based companies. So not to out-of-state. And so that was a pleasure to find out of course it may be it was primarily the thunder and oil and gas but um i was glad to find out that it's not mostly going out of state folks i just think how do we truly diversify so that we're not desperate so we're not begging people to come here i think a lot of it is our challenges around rural oklahoma and trying to make sure we're finding ways for them to build a new economy that's not happening at the rate it needs to um they're losing population they're losing their college grads they're losing their young people um, and so where that's possible, you know, certainly in the, in around the metropolitan areas, just the opportunities have boomed. I mean, Canadian counties boomed. Kingfisher's right. the next area. Um, you know, those, those counties around us and around Tulsa that are, they're finding that opportunity like Mays County, um, like you know, that we've, we've invested a lot of money to make that happen. Well, but then I'm, so what are some like, um, comparable states, you know, um, I mean, cause the governor always mentions Texas. I'm like, Texas is like a whole other thing. Like, it, it's not. It's a, a whole country. other country. You remember the slogan? I mean, it really is. But I mean, just like the GDP, the population, the size. I mean, all oh of yeah, that. it's outrageous. I mean, we're much more like in Arkansas. I mean, economically um, and education-wise. I mean, we really yeah. we count as part of the South to the census, and I think that's accurate in terms of our our education level. You think about who arrived in Oklahoma. You know, it was yeah. either people who were forced here or it was people who were desperate economically. I mean, I doubt that I. if you looked at our 
at statehood, I bet our our education levels were significantly below other parts of the country. You know, I think too. Like, um, I remember looking a couple of years ago, and I think we have like a a, a similar uh, GDP to like Louisiana, um, and I think they they have some of the same kind of um, industries as well, right? Like oil and gas mm-hmm. and stuff. You know, and then there's also like the military, industrial, you know, just kind of the defense industry here in the state, um, which is kind of come and go. But I mean, just the the jobs that kind of, you know, the constellation of jobs that go around all of our dominant industries. Um, so there's defense, which is more high paying oil and gas, which can be more high paying. And then like Walmart is still one of the largest employers in the state, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of reconciling all of those with um, these incentive packages, you know, what's missing from that? And it's like, if the state's not asking, acting as advocates for its people in these mm-hmm. negotiations, um, then who, who, who's gonna do that? Well, I, I mean, I, I know this isn't the only answer, but I think it would help if we had more leverage in the capital to balance things out. There's no good cop, bad cop. There's no, you know, uh, since the supermajority is so big, things can be decided without that public dialogue. So, you know, the pushback right now around incentives is not high. And um, I mean, I assume it was when they established the Senate Valuation Commission, there was a lot more parity between the parties in terms of membership. So it's very hard to, you know, I, I think to push back against companies, you need more give and take publicly um, where people are saying that's too much. So for instance, Google lately, we uh, reduced their access to a certain kind of um, the manufacturer's uh, ad valorem exemption, which is where they don't have to pay property taxes on certain things and improvements for a certain amount of time. They were getting it for their servers um, and they get new servers on their, um, I don't know what you call it, server farm, you know, we were exempting their property tax on that for, and we're paying for it. We're the state of Oklahoma state taxpayers are paying Mays County for what they think the property taxes should be. Right. Um, they're still getting another, I think 10 years, but we made it where new projects cannot get that, that exemption. And that was a huge challenge. Like Kevin Wallace ran a bill that got rid of the entire ad valorem exemption program for manufacturing as a point to say, this is not working. This is corporations are taking advantage of us. He had to do that in order to negotiate satisfactorily with Google just to only allow them to get 15 years on this one project. I mean, it was wild. And I was like, if we had a better give and take in the, in the legislature, they could have said, Oh, the Democrats are never going to go for this. We can't do this deal. But instead they had to do this whole elaborate thing to scare Google enough to change that law. So, but I mean, what what would have happened? Like, would it be like, oh, got a pull? I mean, with and and I feel like this this makes me think of the uh, gross production tax as well, right? right. Um, or the wind? I mean, the wind farm tax where we we did not set that up very well for the state. I mean, we allowed ourselves to be taken advantage of. But it's like so with oil and gas, they're gonna drill where the gas is mm-hmm. they're not gonna like up and go because what is it north dakota has like 11 percent gpt i mean just something mm-hmm. like astro- that just seems astronomical compared to ours mm-hmm. uh, so that old standoff years ago it seems like you know ancient history you know, i know i know but, i mean the, these are industries that aren't 
easily replaced, aren't easily removed. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's other, like, I, I would say logistical and practical needs for, say, Google to have that server farm where it's at, you mm-hmm. know, things like this. I mean, Michelin, I guess, like, okay, yeah, you can just up and move that one, I guess. But um, I don't know. I, I just, like, if this isn't for the benefit of the people, then why does it really matter if these companies are here or not? Right. I don't know. It's tough because they made jobs for decades. You know, like we I mean, if you do the math, I guess still they're saying that our incentives are still paying off. Um, It's just I I agree. I think that the long term economic development investment is education. We're not going to see quick returns, but there's lots of data that shows investments in higher ed, especially has long term returns for economies. Um, That's the problem is we have to get off the quick wins train so the desire to be able to show i mean it's tough when you've got term limited folks you've got governors can't serve more than eight years they have four-year terms you have legislators on two and four-year cycles i mean people want to see quick wins i mean that's why you saw that quick reaction of michelin leaving was as if we could suddenly change thing overnight on how a company's making those decisions and you think of, i mean god you think of like uh the research triangle in north carolina you know, I mean, just absolutely flush with industry, with research, with uh, higher education, and it's all connected. You know, it's just absolutely um, stunning what you do walking around Chapel, Chapel Hill's campus, like I did a couple years ago. These massive buildings to just genomics, you know, I mean, to have like that level of research investment, um, just kind of that partnership and interconnection between um, innovation, higher education, industry, jobs. Um, and yet instead we're, you know, kind of outsourcing tuition to North Texas families <laughs> to really kind of pay the brunt, you know, and we're having to do these. And of course I have a very higher ed centric kind of perspective because that's, you know, my day job, but it's like, you know, so instead you're going to pull these, massive capital campaigns you know campaign can't like like donor campaigns versus the legislature doing what they're supposed to do and making it easier for regular oklahomans to get well then now you have people not wanting to go to school because it's uh, too expensive but it's too expensive because of how we've undercut the support for the school so right and i mean and that's like rhetorical you know just like mm-hmm. discursive support in addition yeah. to financial support um and when you have that language of like oh well you know you're you're a votec person i mean have you all um have you all read the sum of us uh-uh. i'm trying to see if it's right here on my app because i cannot remember the author's name it's an incredible book about how all of us suffer economically because of racist policies that have, have segregated opportunity. And so they, she taught, walks through how the educational attainment, especially like, for instance, educational attainment in parts of the South that had slavery um, into, the, you know, into the Civil War and how that ongoing lack of educational attainment has hurt everyone, white people, black people, everyone. Um, and she walks through how um, the reduction in funding of universities and colleges has aligned with the increased ethnic diversity of people attending. Um, and it's, uh, I wish I could articulate it better, but basically we have to look at why, why are we making, when we used to view higher ed as an opportunity wanted for everyone, 
did that change when we desegregated? Did we stop yeah. wanting it for everyone? So it's Heather McGee. She was with Demo. Thank you. Right? Yes, oh, Heather yeah. McGee. Yeah. Thank you. Such a good book. Such a good book. I need. I clearly need to reread it so that I have a better memory for yeah. pulling maybe, it out. Maybe I'm maybe I'm just cramming a bunch of things together here, and they really shouldn't be crammed together. But yeah, I, I think about the history of Oklahoma and the, and the radical populism of the early 20th century, and and well into this century, one thing among many that set Okies off. Uh, is this notion that somebody's getting something that they don't deserve. They're getting something from the taxpayer. They're, 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 they're working the system. And, you know, and everybody, you know, everybody else isn't getting that and they shouldn't be getting it. And yet we just, it, nobody seems to, you know, except a few of us liberals, raise hell about the fact that we've just opened the treasury to cor whatever corporations wanted over the years. And, and invested in their bottom line and their shareholders, as opposed to investing in all of us. Through, yeah, agreed. You know, well, and where, I, where's the outrage? What, you know, what yeah. are I think there's some, so but it's, so, it's very difficult. Um, I mean, I think, especially when it comes to tax credits and tax incentives, our tax system is very much, much skewed towards owners and business owners. I mean, if you, that, Quality jobs is a cash payment, but most of our business incentives are credits. So it just forgoes taxes. So we don't even actually know sometimes how much we're forgoing or how much we've deducted from taxes. And I think people don't understand what that could have covered or what that could have paid for. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a problem, too. They just don't they have they don't have a notion. Yeah. And they've been convinced that, well, this would be a great thing if we land Panasonic and all these jobs. Well, in. And businesses are very crafty at working the tax code to their benefit. I mean, actually, it's an American thing. It's actually, I'm amazed. I'll be in conversation sometimes and realize that, you know, especially for upper middle and upper income folks, you know, it's borderline tax evasion discussions about things that they're working to make something into a business so they can deduct it or, you know, all this stuff around sponsoring things as a business so that you get tickets, but then you get to count it as a business expense. I mean, those things are all set up for business owners. And, and, then, and then that takes us to school vouchers. <laughs> like everything's a tax deduction, everything. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge tax cut to private school goers yep. that we just implemented. And only them. Yep. You know, we were talking earlier about sort of which states would be more comparable to Oklahoma, and and I and maybe I'm giving them too much credit. You mentioned Arkansas, and I and I, I I'm not going to throw Arkansas into this because they've got their own problems. But I look at places like New Mexico, you know, which has historically been one of the poorest. I mean, they've made us look rich a lot of times, you know, over the years. But they have really invested in recent years in education out there. And they're, they're playing the long game. And I get a sense that, you know, Kansas, after the Brownback experiment, you know, said, no, no, this is, this is we are not doing this again. We're, you know, they, they've gotten much smarter and much wiser. About, and they ended up getting the Panasonic plant up there as a result of that. So, you know, in part. I think because their policies were, you know, a lot 
smarter and a lot wiser. And I just keep wondering, you know, where are we? You know, why, why is it that people around us who, you know, would, it, it would economically be similar to us, um, be so much more forward thinking oftentimes than we are. You know, we're just, we seem like just a small state that's run by a few for the benefit of the few. Yeah, I mean, I've been reading a lot about the interconnection of of just, you know, economic challenges and and just lack of ability to engage in democracy and, you know, public space. So there's they're absolutely interconnected. And you don't have a magic bullet for us on that. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of hard work. It's a lot of hard work. I think yeah. the biggest challenge that I mean, what I was have been dealing with over this interim is just my own ability to be resilient and, and keep hoping, keep working and despite the odds and, and knowing that it can be better and continuing to envision the ways it can be better and that things are not okay. I think it's hard to point out. And I know you spend a lot of time looking at this. Um, it's hard to point out all the ways things aren't going well. And, um, but we got to chip away at it. We got to chip away at it. And I think when you talk about, the tax code, um, including the business incentive part of it. Um, it's just as unbelievably out of balance. Unbelievably. Well, don't you think that most Oklahomans think if they paid, if they thought about it at all, that the tax code needs to be revised? The, the problem is, is that I'm worried about who's going to be doing the revising. Right. I, I don't see it getting any better. I see it getting worse. Again, unless you can bring more balance that's what you get. Uh, you have to them. have more balance. You have to have more balance. I mean, with state question 640, so we, I mean, the amount of people it takes to agree to, to increase anything, we can't actually do holistic fixes. I had a really interesting series of public forums last year um, about taxes because I just, you know, I was like, I'm not being brought into the conversation. So I had my own conversation. I had a, a forum for small businesses and then I had a forum for individuals and overwhelmingly people think it's not fair. They're not sure how to fix it, but they think it's not fair. Yeah. Well, un until they start voting. And it's it's chicken or the egg, right? I mean, we start. It starts, I want so people no, to see. I'm not going to take it anymore. I guess I just want people to see there is a connection between these decisions and we are making choices every day. I mean, I can't tell you when I went on, when I got put on the finance committee, I thought I was going to be doing tax increases or tax reform. And almost all we do is cut taxes little bits at a time in different ways. You know, we cut a little bit. They cut the corporate franchise tax that only affects big national corporations. It does not help little guys. Um, we cut, you know, we cut little things around and I love nonprofits, but we're like one at a time reducing sales tax. And um, it's just very much based around special interests. It's not based around what's holistically right for our state. Um, and I think that's my idealism. But I really hoped that we'd, we would be working for towards a system that was more fair. I'll keep hoping that. <laughs> keep asking for that. You know, I think that's like. I think that's the problem here is that it's not a problem. It's just like, I, I, I'm with you. Like I, I am 100% committed to the possibility and the potential of this state, despite all the things, you know, 
So, yeah, I mean, because I, I, I've been asked this question, you know, like what just recently, um, you know, what, 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 what are you passionate about? I was like, well, I never really thought of it this way, but I'm passionate about the possibility of Oklahoma, mm-hmm. you know, and making it do better, making it act right, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so. Um, and I so, think for a lot of us who have kids and grandkids, you know whom we would like to see be able to flourish here yes you know and be treated with dignity and love here yes indeed yeah Yeah. well we know you got to go uh senator we're really grateful that you could find time for us because i know it's full and um i know you're helping knock doors for candidates um if you want to give a quick plug on that one well yeah. yeah i mean i just don't want people to rest um on you know of course we have an election next november but like there's elections in between there's local elections i'm working on a special election for state senate there's a special election in the house like you can be helping now and i can't emphasize enough how satisfying it is to actually get out and do something like i truly can spin out about um all my concerns and all my uh, how far away the possibilities seem sometimes but Going out and actually talking to voters is is a real antidote. It's awkward. It's not, you know, I mean, you're on someone's doorstep, but I talked to people who didn't know an election was coming up. And so you're informing people and it's face to face. They're gonna remember that. You're talking to people about what they're worried about. People told me things, you know, that they're concerned about. And it's, it's really a great way to cut through the mediated political conversation. I mean, I think Oklahoma Observer does this in writing and in your community events, but we got to start talking to each other, not, you know, through everything being mediated through the media or through social media, um, because that's how we take it back to the authentic self. Who are we? You know, talking to people about what they're worried about. It's meaningful, you know. And, uh, and I'm assuming that even in Comanche County, where you're working in the Senate race there, that what you're finding on those doorsteps is a lot more commonality than you would be led to believe in this state and how people... Oh, yeah. I mean, of course, for my election, I knocked doors for 18 months almost, and I talked to lots and lots. I was talking to moderate Republicans. I was talking to independents, libertarians, Democrats. So many people do not feel represented by our political system, but want to participate. Um, and, And lots of agreement. You know, I might disagree with someone on... 50% 50% of the issues and agree with them 50%, but we can talk about things. Um, I think that's what's meaningful. And, and you know, talking to people about the importance of an election, you know, this state Senate election, it's like, this is very important. This person will get to serve for three years before they would have to be reelected and trying to help them understand how crucial that is. Um, and trying to help them understand what kind of decisions are being made by the person who gets elected to that position. Um, we'll see. I tried to make it clear especially in a special election, your voice is going to be heard because um, it could get very close. We've had special election. We had a state Senate election right before me that was decided by 35 votes. You know, yeah, so yeah. it really does matter if people show up. 100%. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Always glad to have Thank you for listening to this episode of Observer Cast. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about us and share our episodes far and wide on social media. 
If you're interested in sponsoring ObserverCast, please give Arnold Hamilton a call at 405-478-8700 or drop him an email at ahamilton at okobserver.org. You can also support ObserverCast with a tax-deductible donation to the Oklahoma Observer Democracy Foundation, whose mission is to help create a better, more informed Oklahoma. And to help keep us on the air, visit okobserver.org and click on the Donate button on the upper right side of the homepage. We also urge you to subscribe to the Oklahoma Observer, now in its 55th year of comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. We have a special digital subscription rate for ObserverCast listeners, only $1.99 a month for the first year. That's 50% off the usual rate for monthly digital subscribers. Just use the coupon code OBSERVERCAST when checking out to get the discount rate. And finally, we want to thank Jared Deck for the music you're listening to in the background here. He's not just the resident of Norman anymore. He is now the Oklahoma State Representative for House District 44. Congratulations, Representative Deck. We're so proud of you. But you can still download his albums at iTunes and learn more, including dates for any upcoming performances at jareddeathmusic.com.